Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Fame. Thursday, August 13th, 2015. I can't believe some of the stuff we're going to be covering today. It's just awful. It's probably the best way to put it. For tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We use sound biblical hermeneutics proper exegesis, a a firm understanding of historic Orthodox Christianity uh, in order to compare what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets and prophetesses are saying in the name of God to the Word of God to see if what they're actually saying squares with God's Word. And, uh, you know, these are the people whose, you know, books we need to be buying, whose sermons we need to be downloading, whose small, well, whose books need to make up the curriculum for our small group Bible study. And I guarantee you that if you're studying Beth Moore's latest book in your small group study, you're not actually studying the Bible. Yeah, it's kind of how that goes. So now, as I've said at the opening of today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, we're going, you know, there's some crazy things we've got to get to today. We're going to begin with a WALB out of Georgia. Uh, We're going to be listening to a... um, News story about a 92-year-old woman kicked out of her church. Yeah, well, guess why? Well, she wasn't fornocabutilating. Apparently, she got sick, got hospitalized, spent some time, you know, ill, and, well, she stopped tithing. She was a member of this congregation for 50 years, but uh, she got the left foot of fellowship because, well, she became delinquent on her tithe. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of a mess and kind of a problem. So we will be listening to that. Then we're going to switch gears. We have a prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update. And uh, we're going to be listening to Patricia King on her uh, television program, waxing eloquent of about the so-called seer anointing. Yeah. You know, God wants you to see the way he sees so you can develop, you know, skills regarding the seer anointing. I don't, I didn't know if you knew that, but, uh, I'm sure that's all news to you. Then we're going to switch gears again, and we're going to check in with uh, Jim Baker. Apparently, one of the most recent episodes is entitled Urgent Message of Preparation. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) The end is coming. Don't you understand that? If you don't prepare now, you know, 
well, you know, you're, you're just, you're, you're going to die. If you don't buy buckets of food from, uh, you know, Jim Baker, yeah, you're probably going to die is the best way I could say that. And, uh, and then last thing we'll do in this hour is we're going to be listening to a segment from C3 Church. Uh, this is where uh, the prophet Phil Pringle holds court. And we're going to be listening to him explain to us reasons why we as Christians, you know, need money, you know, things to that nature. And then in hour number two, we're going to head down to New Zealand, to a church we have not received, uh, reviewed a sermon from yet. Uh, this is Arise Church. We're going to be listening to Pastor John Cameron and his uh, sermon entitled Fifty Shades of Black and White. Fifty Shades of Black and White. That will uh, round out today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. And we have got a lot of ground to cover. And so the best thing I can think of is just to get right to it. And since our first story is coming out of a news affiliate, that requires us to do this. From WALB, Bainbridge, Georgia, is the headline, or the dateline. Headline reads, 92-year-old woman kicked out of church for not tithing. And I, I got to tell you, more and more of these types of stories are surfacing. And the best way I can put it is, is this is absolutely reprehensible and absolutely despicable. Christians are not under the Mosaic Covenant command to tithe. They are not. Uh, that is not a New Testament or New Covenant command. That is an old covenant uh, ta tax, if you would, in order to upkeep the uh, the uh, the temple. And uh, Christians are not obligated to keep the Mosaic Covenant's tithe. Now, Christians are under obligation, according to Scripture, to meet the needs of their pastor. This is most certainly true. But to tithe? Yeah, no. And I just find it absolutely interesting, in, in, in a terrible way, that pastors um, would basically, for a buck, you toss one of their congregants, who you know, like somebody who's been a member for 50 years, under the proverbial bus over a tithing issue. Here's the report from WALB in Georgia. Here we go. She was a member for more than 50 years. She says she was kicked out of Bainbridge's first African Baptist church for not tithing. WALB News 10's Catherine Patterson spoke with a family member who hopes this situation will bring change to churches across the nation. Josephine King is no longer considered a member of the First African Baptist Church of Bainbridge, Georgia. Gerald Simmons reads over the letter addressed to his aunt, 92-year-old Josephine King. It's terrible. The letter, signed by senior pastor Derek Mike, states that Ms. King has shown non-support towards the church in the areas of, quote, constant and consistent financial and physical participation. She was stunned. Um, she was disappointed. She was shocked. Simmons says his aunt was considered sick and shut in for several months, which explained her lack of attendance. Yeah, by the way, um, you know, I'm a pastor up here in, uh, in rural Oslo, and uh, there are people who I have to go visit and uh, teach the word to and bring the Lord's Supper to. There are shut-ins. And, um, yeah, the job of a pastor is when somebody's you know, shut in and unable to attend church. job of a pastor is actually to go and take care of those people, not discipline them for not showing up and not tithing. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? He also says his aunt has gone above and beyond in the past to financially support the church. You shouldn't chase the individuals down. You shouldn't do that. You know, if, if that's the case, you're money hungry. 
Simmons says he knows his aunt isn't the first person to receive a letter of removal for not tithing and hopes this story will shed some light on the policy. You got to have money to make these churches run, but it's not about money, it's about God. You probably put God first. We tried multiple times to get the church's side of the story, but we're unable to reach any members or officials. In Bainbridge, Catherine Patterson, WALB News 10. Yeah, yeah. didn't we cover a story similar to this, uh, you know, just a few weeks ago? Yeah, we did. Yeah, <laughs> you had uh, a church sending out collection notices to their members who hadn't been tithing and things like that. Yep. You have folks that are money-hungry, teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to teach, are only concerned about making sure that they get a buck rather than actually caring for, as good shepherds, the uh, the flock for which Christ has bled and died for. Yeah, sure sign that you're dealing with a wolf is when, <laughs> you know, when they end up excommunicating you for not showing up when you're sick and not tithing. So, yeah, like I said, this is 100% backwards because the job of a pastor is to preach the word and care for those under his care, uh, not to uh, basically you know, send them off, you know, give them the left foot of fellowship and excommunicate them. You know, that is absolutely reprehensible. So we'll pray for this lady that she finds a good church with a pastor who will care for her and preach the gospel to her because clearly uh, based upon the actions of this pastor she was under a false teacher and a wolf you know wolves only care about money you know what i mean moving along time for prophetic holy orders network information exchange syndicate update that requires us to do this down at an english fair one evening i was there when I heard a showman shouting underneath the flare, I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. There they are standing in a row. Big ones, small ones, some as big as your head. Give them a twist, a flick of the wrist, that's what the showman said. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. Every ball you throw will make me rich. There stands me wife. The idol of me life, singing roll a bell, a ball, a penny, a pitch. Singing roll a bell, a ball, a penny, a pitch. Singing roll a bell, a ball, a penny, a pitch. Roll a bell, a ball, roll a bell, a ball, singing roll a bell, a ball, a penny, a pitch. That's right, I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. So what we're going to be listening to is coming to us from Patricia King's Everlasting Love television program as uh, she interviews a guest teaching us how to develop the seer gift. I mean, did you know that apparently there's like exercises you can do or something like that so that you can develop the seer gift. But uh, here's uh, Patricia King to set this up and explain you know, how we can develop this seer gift. Here we go. God has created us to see as he sees. You, in Christ Jesus, have the ability to see into the unseen dimensions of the kingdom of God. Now, stop right there. So she's making this claim that uh, we, as Christians, have the ability to see into the unseen you know, realms and spiritual kingdom of God kind of thing, right? Now, this is real simple. Where in Scripture does it say this in no uncertain and clear terms? Can you think of a place? I mean, off the top of your head. Oh, yeah, that's in Second uh, Hezekiah chapter 6, verse 66, right? You know, that's, that's where that is, right? 
there, if if this were truly what Christians, quote-unquote, had the ability to do, don't you think there would be a passage that clearly says it? So the question is, where is she getting this from? The answer is that she's getting this from a twisting of God's word. And so what she'll do is she's going to take a passage out of context and then make an extrapolation, kind of like a, a logical syllogism, if you would. Well, if we're if this is true, then this God has to be true. And if that's true, then this, that, and the other thing must also be true, which is never how you do theology, by the way. You can't do theology by taking a passage and then doing logical extrapolations from it and then say, oh, well, the logical extrapolation clearly says that this has to be the case because if this is true, then that has also to be true. No, 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 no. When it comes to sound biblical doctrine, we can only go with what is clearly revealed in God's word. If there is no clear, thus saith the Lord, or a clear, unambiguous passage of Scripture that teaches a particular doctrine, then you're no longer teaching Christian doctrine when you engage in this, you know, you, you got a proof text, and then, well, if that's true, then, well, logically, this has got to be true, and if that's got to be true, then, well, then the other thing's got to be true, too. Yeah, No, this is not how you do biblical Christian doctrine. Biblical Christian doctrine limits itself stays within what is revealed in God's word clearly. Never replaces revelation with experience. Experience is always judged by the clear word of God. And never creates a systematic dogma based upon a logical syllogism or a speculation or if this is true, then that's got to be true kind of thing. No, you got to go with only clear passages of scripture. So, that being the case, there is no clear passage of Scripture that says, well, you know, we as Christians have the ability to see into the unseen realm. If that were true, Scripture would say it, and we as Christians would have, like, no problem whatsoever. It would be as natural as, like, drinking iced tea. You know, we'd be, we'd be walking down the street and all of a sudden, you know, I'm seeing into the unseen realm. Whoa! Yeah, right, yeah. Um, but without a clear passage, yeah, that's just not going to happen. So let's find out where she's getting this idea from. Because the king lives in you. Yeah, so because the king lives in me, I'm able to see into the unseen realm. Really? Really? Uh, oh, you know what I should do? <laughs> you know, I did this wrong. I, re- I, I, I just thought of how I really should have played this. Hang on a second here. I'm going to back this up and let's let's see if I can uh, amend this and... Uh, you know, right my wrong, if you would. Hang on a second. In Christ Jesus, have the ability to see into the unseen dimensions of the kingdom of God because the king lives in you. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I'll be here all night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Wrong king. Okay, continue, Patricia. Jesus said that he only did the things that he saw his father do. Yes, that's in the Gospel of John chapter 5. Now, Jesus said he did the things he saw his father doing, right? Um, but this is nowhere in the text. says, and therefore, you must do the things that you see your father doing. So, therefore, I'm giving you the ability to see into the unseen w- world. No. 
So, so notice she's making reference to a passage in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, you know, he does the things he sees his father doing. And now she's going to do the therefore. Well, we can then extrapolate from that. What are we going to extrapolate from that little nugget of Bible, uh, Patricia? He had the ability to connect with the father's heart, yeah. to see his purposes and to fulfill them. And so do you. Uh-huh. Where does it say that, though? Jesus is the sinless, spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and he's God the Son in human flesh. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I'm going to go with the idea that God the Son in human flesh is capable of seeing and doing things that, as well, a natural, sinful, fallen human being I can't do. You know, I, I, I have yet to actually, you know, raise the dead. Yeah, I know, it's kind of embarrassing, isn't it? I've never raised anybody from the dead. Nope. In fact, I've never given sight to the blind either. Hmm. And when I was a kid, I tried that whole walking on water thing. I, I, when I grew up, my family had a swimming pool in their backyard. And I tried the whole walking on water thing. And, you know, I didn't even make it one step. I know. I, it's so embarrassing. Clearly, I am, like, spiritually just a dork i mean i have like no chops whatsoever so i i can't raise the dead can't give sight to the blind i can't walk on water i mean what's the point of even being a christian you, you see <laughs> the point is is that she's claiming well jesus says he saw the things his father was doing and because we have the king living living in us thank you thank you very much um you know that means that we you know uh, we have that same ability but there's no passage of scripture that says that would you like to develop in those abilities to be able to connect with the father in that way and see as he sees mm-hmm. what i like to develop mm-hmm. So are there spiritual exercises? Is it like spiritual Pilates? You know, do I burn you know calories and lose weight if I do these spiritual exercises to help me develop this ability to, you know, see into the spiritual realm? I'm curious, you know, because I mean, if it had that double benefit, I, you know, you know, I, I would be tempted to say yes. Well, today's guest is an expert in that, really, because he's had encounter in the seer dimension. Oh, he's an expert because he has had encounter in the seer dimension. Wow, put that on a resume. Yeah, so you know, tell me about your work experience, and you know, what qualifies you for the job of senior vice president of our corporation? Well, you know, I uh, spent some years. As uh, a regional manager with XYZ Company, and then I moved over to Acme. And, oh, did I mention the fact that I have, like, lots of experience in the seer realm? No. Really? Really? Oh, man, we can't wait to hire you. I mean, put that one on a resume. I'm sure it'll be, like, super impressive to most people, yeah. And Jonathan Welton, I want to thank you so much for being... Jonathan Welton, okay, yeah. ...with us today. You are the author of The School of the Seers, a very popular book, in fact, a bestseller in many in many venues. And this book has helped so many people. Uh, helped in what way? I mean, clearly the man doesn't teach anything that's sound biblically. Enter into the realm of the seer anointing. Uh, enter into the realm of the seer. Don't you think if God wanted us to enter into the realm of the seer anointing, that there would be a passage in, you know, maybe one of the minor prophets or one of the epistles talking about the seer anointing and the things that you can do to, quote unquote, develop in the seer anointing? So what I'd like to do, first of all, is ask you, how did you 
become aware of this realm and its availability to you. Mm, okay, so the the answer is so this is the question on the table. How did you become aware of this realm and the anointing that's available to uh, you know you and everyone else? All right. So we've got the question out on the table. He's thinking right now. In fact, I'm looking at him, and he clearly is cogitating. And so the next thing out of his mouth had better be, well, while I was reading in the book of Second Kings or in Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, I saw this text that tells us about the seer anointing. And, and in, in this text, this prophet or that apostle said that if you know that the seer anointing is available to us all and here are the steps that we can take to in order to develop our uh, you know our access and our ability into the seer realm okay that's where he needs to go from here so what's going to be the first thing that comes out of his mouth a clear biblical text or a personal experience let's see well i grew up in a christian home i was uh homeschooled and raised in a uh, actually sixth generation Christian. And so this sounds like personal experience to me. Um, we were already Christian, but not so much on the uh, hearing from God, having visions uh, type of Christian until uh, I got to my teen years. And I started to hear that there was more um, available to us than I had been told all my life. And so I began to pursue uh, the prophetic, dreams, visions, I, I became a... a ver- How do you pursue those? I mean, which road do you go down? How fast is it moving for you in order to catch up to it? Just reader and going to conference after conference to learn about these things. It says in the Bible, if you seek, you'll find. Yeah. And if you knock, the door will be open. So that's yeah. what happened for you. You're yeah. Pers- yeah, but see, the <laughs> you have to seek things that are like real. I mean, if I seek the Easter bunny... Do you think I'm going to really find the real Easter bunny? You know, the seer anointing is, well, as real as the Easter bunny. I, I'm just saying. So you could seek the seeker anointing all you or the seer anointing all you want, but it's not actually taught in the scripture. So sitting there and quoting the verse, hey, it says in the Bible, if you seek, you'll find. Right. Uh-huh. And if I seek Roger Rabbit, will I find him? He's a rewarder of, the of those. Things who, that you yeah, he rewards Love those it. who diligently seek him, and and so I was going after it, and uh, I had some experiences which led to the book. There you go, experience, not the written word of God. So how do we know about the seer anointing? Well, it's not because it's written anywhere in scripture. It's because this guy went to conferences and he had experiences. Hmm. Why should I trust his experiences are going to teach me anything about sound? Christian doctrine and anything that God truly wants me to know. If God wanted me to know about the seer anointing, don't you think he would have taken the time to inspire one of the apostles or one of the prophets to write down the information about the seer anointing and how to grow in it? Um, being written, it took about seven years to put the book out and, and write out everything the Lord had put in my heart. Right. Um, but it was uh, it was a long experience of uh, growing in visions and dreams and learning about this realm that I didn't even know was there for us. Wow. Now, you had an encounter initially also. Notice, again, experience. Yeah. Where you're almost like you're, 
your your physical eyes were open to see into the spirit realm. Can you explain that encounter with us? It was very overwhelming. As, as you're, you're saying, it was, um, you know, it was 30 days. And I, I started by going to a... Uh, there was a prophet who had come to the local area, and so I'd gone to his P-R-O-F-I-T. meeting uh, to, to hear about, you know, what is prophecy, how do we operate in this, and, and so he calls me out of the crowd, has me stand up, and he gives me this word, and he says, you're going to start to see more than you ever wanted to. Well, at the point uh, that he says that, I, I didn't even have any desire to see, I, I just wanted to hear and uh, it triggered something. And so uh, I went home that night and I'm, I'm seeing fire on my bookcase. I'm seeing... Almost like just immediately? It was like a switch flipped. Like one prophetic word. Yeah. And I mean, I just want to yeah. just kind of insert this a little bit right now because our ministry, of course, loves the prophetic. Now, I'm going to point something out here. I'm not going to say that he's not telling the truth. Let's just assume he's speaking the truth. He really had this experience. Does that prove the experience comes from God? Answer, no, not at all. Not at all. What are the potential sources here? The potential sources are he's either totally delusional and you know mentally needs to be checked into an institution because he's having hallucinations. That is a real possibility. He is getting this from God or this is a trick of the demonic or he's lying. Okay, so those are your four options. He's mentally cracked. God's actually talking to him and causing these things. This is demonic, or he's not telling the truth. Let's assume he's telling the truth. So that means that we have three possibilities. Uh, Mr. Welton is, um, well, mentally unstable. He's hearing directly from God, or he's uh, hearing from the devil. Well, we can rule out the fact that he's hearing from God. And the question is, well, how can you be so quick to rule it out? Real simple. Because if God wanted us to know about the seer anointing, it would be in the written word of God. Scripture itself tells us that it is sufficient. In 2 T- Timothy chapter 3, it says, All scripture is God-breathed, all of it, and is profitable for correction and teaching and rebuking And it says this wonderful thing about the Word of God. It says that uh, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Every good work. That means that whatever it is that God is going to prepare you to do, the good works that he's prepared in advance for you to do as a Christian, the thing you need to equip you for it is the written Word of God. You'll be complete and fully equipped for every good work. If there was a good work that you needed to be equipped for outside of the Word of God, then the Word of God is not sufficient. And 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, yeah, it's um, not telling you the truth. So here we've got this extra biblical revelation. Oh, and by the way, um, if you read like Jeremiah 23 and Jude, uh, you'll find that the, it's the false prophets, not the true prophets, that go on and on about dreams and visions and things like that and lead people astray. It's not the it's true prophets of God who speak this way. It's the false prophets. So the question is, who are you going to trust? The written word of God or this guy that Patricia King is putting forward as somebody we need, whose book we need to be buying so that we can learn how to operate and develop in the seer anointing? Right. Yeah, I'm going to go with the written word of God and basically say, yeah, 
all experience, doesn't matter if the experience comes to us in the name of Jesus Christ, all experience gets tested by the written word of God. So because this man is teaching us something that is totally not revealed in scripture, um, and is based upon his personal experiences, not the written word of God, I know with certainty I should not, ought not, listen to this man, and I need to warn people about it. Is scripture sufficient? Well, scripture says that it is. And if it tells us that it is, if it isn't, then it's lying. Think about it. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we have a Jim Baker update and uh, also an update from C3 Church in uh, Australia, Prophet Bill Pringle on money. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Welcome, George Hayworth and Raymond Stewart. Whoa, dude, your GPS knows, like, who's getting in the car and stuff. Yeah, you know, it's like the newest model. My dad works for some big technology company called Cyberdyne. And, you know, he gave it to me as a birthday gift, but, man, it's so smart, it's, like, really creepy. <laughs> okay, man, this it's cool. I guess we're going over to Luke's house, then? Yeah. Hey, GPS! What can I do for you? Could you, like, plot our route to Luke's house? Plotting route to Luke's house. There is an accident on the I-95 freeway approximately 10 miles from your current location. Do you wish to take the side streets? Well, I guess we're gonna have to. Yeah, go ahead and take the side streets. Recalculating. And run away, dude! In 300 feet, make a left turn. So, Ray... What'd you think about the sermon last Sunday? Yeah, I thought it was okay, I guess. Okay? Dude, it like totally changed my life. What do you mean, bro? In half a mile, make a right turn. Well, I was meditating on the whole Jesus died for me thing. And then I realized that by doing that, Jesus was saying to me, Dude, you are so worth it. Yeah, I know that, man. Yeah. But it's even better than that. 
Really, man? Like, how so? Well, think about it. Not only does Jesus' death prove that I was worth it, well, that also means that I have some ridiculously important dream destiny that I'm supposed to fulfill. Well, man, how do you figure? Well, Jesus is the Son of God, right? Right. Well, that means it wasn't some third-rate angel that died for me, right? Yeah, you're right. Turn right in 500 feet. Fact. Jesus, he's like the most important dude in the whole universe. And if Jesus is the most important dude in the whole universe, well, he wouldn't waste his time dying for a nobody. So, the way I figure, that means I must really be a somebody. And that means that the reason why Jesus died for me is so that I can accomplish some ridiculously important destiny. I mean, after all, important people don't waste their time dying for unimportant people. Make a right turn in 50 feet. All right, dude, I think I'm tracking with you now. So I'm thinking, I've got like some uber cosmic destiny that I've got to achieve. I bet there's some planet on the other side of the galaxy that I'm the one that's supposed to save it. You've just missed the turn. Recalculating. So that make you like Luke Skywalker or something? Not even. I mean, I've got to be way more important than Luke Skywalker. In 500 feet, please make an illegal U-turn. So you're like Yoda. Don't insult my greatness, dude. Remember, the son of God died for me. Whoa, 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 dude. Like, who would be greater than Yoda? I feel like I'm being ignored. The force itself. Dude, you think you're as important as the force? That would make you like, God. Now you're finally starting to see the light, dude. You morons. You are both wrong. You are both sinners who truly deserve death and hell. You're not God. You're not the force. You're not Yoda. And you're certainly not Luke Skywalker. You're just two guys who are ten feet from the edge of a very treacherous cliff. Oh, well I guess if I was a god I would have seen this coming. Now you're finally starting to see the light. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, Our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches.
Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Down, click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com, write down the promo code, click on the ad banner and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that people peddling books teaching you about the seer anointing are not actually teaching you anything that God wants you to know about. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95. That's it. Every month to the ongoing work and Mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio, that is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support, because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without I almost forgot our zip code. I'm losing my mind. Moving along. Yeah, that's right. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I got to tell you, you know, over and again, we note the fact that uh, Jim Baker, 
of the Jim Baker Show, which airs on TBN and other places. Well, he's out there fear-mongering in order to sell all kinds of prepper supplies, including buckets full of, you know, five-gallon buckets full of food, you know, that you need to store in your basement because, you know, there's all these threats and these weird things happening. It's it's the end of the... You need to buy their, you know, their... <laughs> Their you know electric generator, their solar powered this and gizmo that, and and you need to be ready because you're not gonna survive if if you don't understand the signs that he's seeing. And uh, the name of their show, which aired on July 27th, is Urgent Message of Preparation. Urgent Message of Preparation. And literally, if you watch that thing, and you can watch this at JimBakerShow.com. That's two Ks, by the way. You watch this thing. I mean, it is flagrant fear-mongering in order to make a buck. Eschatological fear-mongering all in the name of Jesus so that they can move product. That's what this program is really all about. And here's you know an example from that program. Here we go. Israel, the headlines from Washington Post says one of the darkest days in history on the deal with Iran. Uh, is economic Armageddon just one click away? Another headline. The world saw an unusual number of suspicious economic events Wednesday. I want to tell you something. This event was either a very wicked plan from a enemy countries or it was a plan from a supernatural hellish source. Yes, and this event that you're referring to is that day that the New York Stock Exchange uh, came to a grinding halt for hours. And Four this- hours. Okay, it came for, to a grinding halt, but, and that's one thing, and it's never that type of event never has happened before in that way. And so nobody knew. They wouldn't tell us, and uh, so I was... I was getting suspicious because that morning, hundreds of United Airline air flights also stopped running. So they were saying, well, it's just an accident that the stock market's closed. Airlines are grounded. And that same day, Microsoft laid off 7,800 people. And Apple investors saw... Oh, man. I mean, folks, Microsoft laid off people. I mean, if you don't buy food now from Jim Baker, don't you understand? Microsoft laid off 7,000 employees. Don't you get it? You've got to call them right now, and you need to buy yourself... One of those, you know, portable solar generator thingies so that you can have electricity and be able to power your refrigerator through, you know, the, you know, the, tri- the, the tribulation. I mean, if you don't act now, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, that's the sure sign. And, and now they're going to talk about, you know, Apple apparently. $69 billion vanish and China was suffering a financial meltdown. And At all- the same, yeah, China's just literally crashing its market. But Apple... If you're not in that stock, $69 billion doesn't mean a lot. But if that's your life savings, if that's your investment for retirement, that means a lot to you. Yes. But the thing is, uh, it says, are these the indications of a cyber attack or even a global economic in distress? And they said, no, it's just 
just a glitch. Yeah. So if it wasn't a plan by a foreign government. So which foreign government is responsible for the layoff of the 7,000 Microsoft employees? I'm curious. It was it, it was sinister. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I just believe- yeah, I don't think laying off 7,000 Microsoft employees is sinister. I'm a Mac user myself, and so I'm all about Apple. So I don't think that's sinister. I think that's something worth rejoicing over. Again, which nefarious evil dictatorship was responsible for the layoff of 7,000 Microsoft employees? I believe it's the beginning of a collapse of a col- of a collapse of this country. Like we've never seen before. Yeah, that's it, folks. I mean, the collapse is coming. This country is toast because Microsoft laid off 7,000 employees. Right. Vince, undescribable events you can't figure out are going to happen Mm -hmm. in the days to come. And uh, they're not happy in Greece right now. No, they are not. They're they're coming apart. And uh, they're stocking up on... Food, essentials, yes. the sugar, flour, rice, yes. All the all the special. Yeah, see, what's happening in Greece, that's just, you know, the first kaplunk. I mean, this is going to happen globally now, you know, because, you know, because you, Greece and their problems are, they, they mirror exactly what's going on here in the United States. It's, it's just a matter of time before you won't be able to get basic essentials, you know, like sugar and toilet paper and things. You need to, you need to, you know, right now call the Jim Baker hotline all the regular things that you need mm-hmm. and uh, uh we were talking about the food stamps people want to do it's funny 48 million people in america are on food stamps every day but yet people think it's crazy because we're talking about storing food <laughs> yeah this whole program is about buying and storing food from jim baker ministries uh-huh <laughs> yeah yeah he's not fear-mongering at all is he but 48 million people need a little card, like a credit card, to go mm-hmm. to get groceries. Yes. All of these events say prepare. Yeah, that's right. Microsoft laying off 7,000 workers. That's a sign to you. You need to prepare. And the way you prepare is buy stuff from Jim Baker. It's time now to do what God spoke. You, you, God you know, God is telling you to send money to Jim Baker and, you know, buy these prepper supplies. Many decades ago to put food away in history. So let Yeah, the little crawl on the bottom of the screen says $3,500 plus shipping for tasty new foods offer. Seven years of food for you. For just $3,500. Send it now to uh, JimBakerShow.com. Let's do what God said to do. Yeah, so God's telling you to to, to buy uh, three, uh, seven years' worth of food from Jim Baker. He said there's coming a time where there'll be no food. And I, I just want you to be ready. Mm-hmm. I want you to be ready. Yeah, no, you just want to make a huge profit and to financially gain from uh, all this fear-mongering that you're doing. And I believe, you know, I guess I'm the only preacher <laughs> telling you to get ready. I'm sh- there's got to be somebody out. 
He's the only one out there, folks. He's the only one who's figured out that, you know, you need prepper supplies and need to spend $3,500 so that you can buy a seven-year supply of food for yourself. I mean, that's just for one person for seven years. And, of course, that's an important number because how long is the tribulation? Oh, seven years long. And, you know, and the fact that, you know, Microsoft laid off 7,000 people and, you know, things are going bad in Greece, you know, and China, you know, had a little financial hiccup there. Yeah, you know what that means. And you because you know, there was a computer glitch and one of the airlines had a problem getting its flights in the air for a few hours one day. Uh, yeah, you know, that that's it. You, the, God's telling you right now to buy food from Jim Baker. Yeah, I don't think so. I really don't think so. This is an example, again, of eschatological fear-mongering all in the name of Jesus because what is Jim Baker doing? Scripture t- makes it so clear what he's doing. You are, he, well, what he's doing is teaching for shameful gain the things that he ought not to teach. That's what he's doing. He's trying to make a ton of money, and I'm sure he's doing just fine financially. Make a ton of money, you know, out there, you know, taking advantage of, you know, headlines and fear-mongering in order to, well, of course, you know, it is the Shemitah year, you know, and the four blood moons. Oh, oh. You better buy food from Jim Baker now. That's all I got to say. Moving along.
uh, Los Lobos Ministry Records and their rendition of Casting Vision. That's right. Fill that plate, folks. Um, so what we're going to be listening to is a segment of a message given by Phil Pringle recently entitled Eight Reasons to Give. Eight Reasons to Give. And, boy, the things he says in this message, whoo, they are rather fascinating. But uh, rather than describe them, let's turn it over to Phil Pringle and see if any of this makes any sense to you. Here we go. Wonderful. I want you to come with me to 2 Corinthians 8.1, please. And some people have called this the cannibal verse because it says 2 Corinthians 8.1. And... Uh... Um, the interviewers, uh, Phil and Steph, uh, asked me, where do they fit in, the young adults fit into the 2020 vision, which is that by the year 2020, we will have in our movement 1,000 churches with an average membership of 500 each. So notice he's vision casting here, talking about where do the young people fit into their quote-unquote 2020 vision, because they have a vision from God. They 1,000 churches, you know. And, uh, and my reply to them was, what part do you play in it? You are the 2020 vision. I'm going to be 68 in the year 2020. You better be the vision. I just said to them, I'm, I've got a baton in my hand and I'm running pretty fast. So you better be running at the same pace as me, in the same lane as me, in the same direction as me. If you want to ever get that baton, you know, passed on. And, uh, but I said, you are, you are the 2020 vision. I said, the only thing, the only difference is that by the year 2020, everything's going to be bigger. Everything will be way bigger than it is right now. By the year 2020, everything is going to be bigger. When I was a kid, a large church was 400 people, four or 500 people. That was like a, a move of God. A miracle has happened. A church has broken through. And my deepest aspiration was to have a church like that. My prayer was, I want a church of 500 people. Golly, if I could just do that, I'd be like dying and going to heaven. And because uh, everybody had churches of 30, 40, 50, and, and this kind of thing. And that was, that was the norm. In fact, I was just in England, and I asked a guy there how many churches, because he was the head of a denomination. And I said, how many churches do you have? He said, 658. I thought, oh, that's impressive. But I thought what really would impress me is if, you know, their average membership was high. So I said, what's your average membership? And he said, 48. So I thought, oh, golly. Lord, don't let me ever have a denomination of churches that are, there's a lot of churches and they're all little, you know, because I thought that's just painful. For yeah, little churches. <laughs> Can't have that if you're a vision casting leader. No, you need to have separation between you and the unwashed masses. I mean, if you had a small church, you know what would happen is, is that, you know, little old gray-haired ladies with their cracked leather Bibles might come up and ask you a tough question. Or, you know, your church council might have, you know, hold you accountable to false doctrine and false prophecy. <laughs> Big churches are necessary for vision-casting prophetesses and prophets like, you know, well, you know, Phil Pringle and his wife. And, uh, and, you know, that creates a, a separation, you know, cause they're up on stage and they have bodyguards and, you know, if you had a small church, whoa, no, yeah, you got to despise those things. Cause then people might think that they have a say in, you know, in holding the pastor accountable to things or for, to be looking after that. And also for those pastors, it's so demoralizing and discouraging when you know your church could be 500 or could be a thousand. Why would that be demoralizing? I serve a tiny congregation, and I mean tiny. You know, it's a rural con congregation out in Oslo. And, you know, on a, on a good Sunday, 30, 35 people. 
And that doesn't demoralize me one bit. This is where Christ has called me to serve. Why would 30 or 35 of Christ's saints demoralize a pastor? When, you know, well, it should be 500. Who says? I couldn't pastor effectively a church of 500 people. That would be impossible, at least for me as a single human being. Um, and I'm not about to, you know, create a degree of separation that makes it so that the people whom I serve don't have access to me. That doesn't make any sense. Well, it could be 2,000. And, and, and that, is, that, is where, that is where the church will go. And so today, a church of 500 is, it is, there, there, it is, it is the average size of the churches in our movement. We have, we have nearly uh, about 150 churches, and we have more in our movement than that denomination has with 650 churches. Yeah, so let, let's do the math here, okay? Here's kind of a, a word math problem. Okay, you have one congregation, and it has 30 members in it. And the 30 members are all under a pastor who preaches sound doctrine, rightly divides law and gospel, sin and grace, proclaims repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And all 35 members of that church are all penitent believers in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and are bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay, so that's one. So you got 35 over here. And in column B, you have a church of 5,000 people. And the pastor teaches false doctrine, is a false prophet, doesn't proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins, doesn't rightly handle good, you know, God's word, narsegeets it constantly, and, um, you know, and basically has people engaging in all kinds of spiritual nonsense, and they have no clue what God's word really says because he's always twisting and mangling it. You know, like uh, scripture describes the, the, the uh, false teachers as, you know, waterless rain clouds, you know, wandering stars. And so, you know, the 5,000 people who are all there, none of them are hearing sound doctrine and they're believing apostasy and false doctrine. So there you go. You got 35 in one category and you have 5,000 in another. So here's the question. Based upon that math, um, which church has the most people actually on the last day who are going to hear from Christ, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your father's kingdom and rest? How, you know, which, which church has the most you know, uh, that are going to you know, numerically? And then how about most as a percentage of the overall congregation? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know, if you're going to talk about numbers, yeah, don't sit there and talk quantity only. It's quantity and quality of teaching. If you have 5,000 people uh, te- going to a building and they're hearing false doctrine, the kingdom of God hasn't grown any bit at all. And you, uh, that just means you're on the wide road that leads to destruction rather than the narrow path that leads to eternal life. Because of a higher average size. In Australia, we're about 409 in our, in our membership. And so what I'm saying is that everything is getting larger. God's plan for his church is not that it would wimp out before the second coming, but that it becomes the dominant influence in the world before the second coming of Jesus Christ. Yeah, where does it say that in Scripture? I, I seem to recall Jesus asking when he returns, will he find faith on the earth? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's the truth. He says, in the last days, my house will become the chief of all the mountains. 
Of all the mountains, it'll be bigger than any media empire. It'll be bigger than any insurance company, any bank, any, any commercial organization in this city will be eclipsed by the might and the power of a, of a, a church that's alive and full of glory, full of power. And we, the... Full of glory. This is a theology of glory, self-glory, not glorifying Christ. The journey there will be full of opposition and attacks, but I got to tell you, hang on for the ride, put your crash helmets on, undo your seatbelts, because anything could happen. Amen. You could do them up, I guess. Amen. You're in the church of Jesus Christ. It's unstoppable. It is unquenchable. Plenty of times people tried to stop, but it just won't get stopped. And, and everything will get bigger. So I said to these young guys, I said to these young adults, I said, okay, so if right now we are believing God every, every week, you know, like for half a million dollars for a $24 million budget with the school, the Bible colleges here in our church, that's, that's combined. It's, it's actually a little more than that uh, these days. And, uh, but you know, that, that, that believing God that, you're gonna, you, you've got to see that amount of money coming every week. That can keep you up at nights. And uh, that, can, that can get you praying really seriously. It gets me praying. I wake up in the morning, someone says, golly, I'm, I better go and pray. And, uh, and I start believing God and praying and confessing the word of God over this church because, uh, I, you know, for me, that's big. Now, once upon a time, for my, us to raise enough money for a grand piano, which was going to cost us $4,000, that was a big project. At the start of this church, I can remember with Kevin Wood gave us his caravan to sell so that we could buy the, so that we could buy the, the grand piano. And, uh, and then somebody loaned us the money so that we could have the money to buy the piano. And then when the caravan got sold, we could pay him back, and, which was great. It all worked out. Amen. In fact, when he sold the caravan, the other guy said, oh, I'll keep it anyway. Amen. So I love it when that sort of thing happens, you know. But we, that was a big project. That's a church. We're going to buy a grand piano. Amen. Let's believe God together. Because before that, the biggest project had been to, to buy the overhead projector for, for $480. Amen. And now we're, we, we're, we've put up nearly $60 million worth of buildings all around here. And now we're believing for $6.5 million to expand this and double the number of seats in here and expand so that we're building for the future and, and do all these things. But I'm telling you, in another 10 years... There'll be, there'll be, we'll be needing to believe God for $60 million. And then beyond that, we'll be needing to believe for $600 million. Because if we are going to be the dominant influence in the city, you need to buy television stations. You need to be able to buy banks. You need to- what? So we Christians, God wants everything big, so you better start getting enough money and believing God so that you can buy a bank and a television station. What? Where is this found in Scripture? The answer is it isn't. He's not preaching from Scripture. He's preaching from his so-called vision from God. This is a vision casting uh, message. You need to be able to buy hotel chains, and that's going to take billions of dollars. Yeah, so you need to buy – If you're, you're not going to be up to what God's up to if you're not buying a hotel chain. And that the capacity to actually go into that zone starts right here, right now. It's not like it's just going to happen somewhere out there. It begins by us increasing and expanding our capacity, which is what we're doing naturally in this building which is a reflection of what we're doing on the inside of our hearts by expanding our giving and enlarging our concept. So you need to start expanding your giving because God wants everything big in the last days. Except about what we can give. You know, I was in that meeting the other night, and I think I said it uh, there. I was just, 
I don't know where the thought came from. I was sitting there because uh, Chris and I were in a restaurant the other day, and I said, "Well, wherever the thought came from, we can say it didn't come from God." You'd be great at running a restaurant. I said that to Chris, you know, because she's she's pretty good at cooking and at hospitality and all that sort of stuff. So we thought, yeah, wouldn't that be great? Owning a restaurant. And then we said, oh, we've got too much to do. And uh, I thought, oh, we could get a manager to look after it, you know, and uh, have Phil's restaurant. We could have all our friends come around and, uh, and shout them all meal and run the thing bankrupt. And, uh, you know, I mean, uh, but, uh, but then I thought, you know, I've always thought, sort of thought I'd like to own a hotel too, you know, that'd be fun. Uh, and, and I thought then I could have three restaurants inside the hotel. And, uh, Oh, what the heck? Why not own a chain of hotels? Amen. But you know, it's hard for a pastor to think of things like that. And, and, but I'm thinking I might one day. Amen. But if I'm thinking those thoughts, you should be too. You- uh, why? Why should I be thinking these thoughts? Just because you are? Where in Scripture does it tell me I need to be, start thinking about buying hotel chains? You, you know, instead of just thinking, oh, I'm going to go down and buy a bicycle, go down and buy the whole firm. Amen. What? That- and, and, and instead of thinking, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just start, you know, a little money loaning thing, buy the Commonwealth Bank, amen? Just start to think in a bigger capacity. Yeah, and buy, while you're at it, buy seven years' worth of food for yourself for only $3,500 from Jim Baker. I mean, what on earth is this man talking about? If God wanted us to do this, don't you think it would be written clearly in the, in the Word of God? in the biblical text. So where is he getting this idea from? Oh, yeah, that's right, from his so-called 2020 vision that he claims he received from God. Did he receive it from God? Yeah, not even close. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Sermon from Arise Church in New Zealand. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We will be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. The internet and the countless technologies around us, such as smartphones, tablets, PCs, cameras, video games, have become quintessential parts of our daily lives. In fact, our broadcast might be streaming on your phone right now. Communication and access to information has advanced faster than our ability to manage it responsibly. Texting and email are but two small examples of how technology has provided the means necessary to communicate over long distances, while at the same time giving people the ability to hide behind shadowy anonymity. By its very nature, technology is a double-edged sword. It provides the immediacy we desire and need, yet it also provides gateways for isolation from proper supervision. As adults, we can govern our own actions and submit to others for accountability. Or not. But how good are we at modeling or overseeing technology in the hands of children? Do our children have more knowledge about technology than we do? Do we choose to trust our children with such powerful tools without any oversight? 
Many people nowadays are aware of the dangers of the internet, such as cyberbullying, sexting, predators, stalking, trolling, video game addiction, pornography, etc., etc. But simple awareness is rarely met with measures of protection, appropriate oversight, or engaging communication. Typically, parents are trusting and simply managing from crisis to crisis because they don't know where to start or what to do in the first place. The Parentum was created as a centralized destination to provide parents information on the available security tools for all internet-connected devices. We provide educational instructions on how to protect families from technological immersion and information on a host of potential life-altering risks born from the dangerous elements of the internet. The Parent Dome's mission is to empower parents to be actively aware and engage stewards of technology for their children. Technology advances daily and those seeking to exploit it with the intent to cause harm maintains that same pace. At the Parent Dome, we continually update our website in order to properly address the changing needs of parents and families to better defend them against predatory exploits. Please visit us at www.parentdome.com for further information. Thank you. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. Bad the Ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Pastor John Cameron and uh, Arise Church, Wellington, New Zealand. The message that we're going to be listening to is entitled 50 Shades of Black and White. And the more I think about it, the less I'm confident that I can actually prepare you for what it is that it, you're about to hear. Maybe a good way to describe the sermon is to say that it should be called Heaven Isn't Real or something like that. But uh, I'll have to let uh, Pastor Cameron explain this to you. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here is uh, Pastor John Cameron and his sermon entitled Fifty Shades of Black and White. Here we go. Taking notes, this is, the, this is the first of our new series, which we've entitled 50 Shades of Black and White. We're going to be talking about relationships over the next few weeks. Um, and for this message, you can call Oh goody. Call this message. Stay with me. Don't walk out of the service, no matter where you are, especially you Whangarei people. I know you're religious. Um, uh, you can call this message, Heaven Isn't Real. Now, before you freak out, he's he's not like a Rob Bell type. He's trying to make some kind of weird point and doesn't do a very good job of it. But we continue. Heaven isn't real. John chapter 1, and we're going to start reading in verse 14. It says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory... 
the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Now the next passage is in the book of Matthew chapter 5. Turn over with me there. Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. It's just a couple of pages over. In verse 27, Jesus said, I know it's Jesus because it's in red. It says, you heard, have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, one more passage of scripture, and it's from the book of Revelation. It's the last book in the Bible. If you get to a concordance, you've gone too far. Come back a little bit. Revelation chapter 21, and we're going to start reading in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. Here's our crucial verse. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. You know, one of the greatest trends today. Okay, so I got to give him props. He read out several passages of scripture. That's generally a good sign. Let's see what happens with this sermon. Today has got to be reality television. I mean, it is just sweeping the world. I mean, it's, you know, kind of, I don't know, it's something of a pandemic. You've now got your own reality television YouTube channels. We've got reality television shows. We've got The Biggest Loser. We've got The Makeover. We've got Idol. We've got stars in our eyes. I mean, I don't know. We've got Dancing with the Stars. I find that just absolutely horrible to watch. It's like embarrassment dressed up as a television show. Uh, We've got the Kardashians. Apparently that's all real. Um, Not that I've ever watched, but anyway, you know, we've got it. and, And our whole world has been swept up in this amazing trend called reality television. The people are real. The scenes are supposedly real. The stories are real. And our culture has not just fallen in love with reality television. We have fallen in love with the real. We want to be regaled with stories, but no longer stories of heroism or, you know, grand uh, adventure or of amazing principal behavior. We want to hear all the juicy details about somebody's flawed existence. We want to be involved in the real. We're all about the real. Real renovations, uh, real courts of law, uh, real people losing weight, real bachelors, and we're all into 
the real. I mean, you know, it's a, now it's like a, a comment. How was it? Oh, it was so real. In fact, I was listening to Talkback Radio the other night, as you do, um, and they were talking about they were talking about the Blair Witch Project and about how this horror movie came out uh, that I haven't seen. But uh, you know, they're saying that the reason why it was just so captivating was because it was all shot to make it look exceptionally real. And whilst real isn't bad, our motive behind why we love it can be. Because we love real, we love real television and real life stories because we can see what somebody else is going through and oftentimes feel a whole lot better about who we are in light of the phenomenal dysfunction that we're seeing in somebody else. I mean, we long to look at somebody else's life and realize that we're not as dysfunctional as they are, that they're stuffing up their life in a greater way than I am, that they're blurring the lines between right and wrong in a way that I would never do it. And we love real because it can make us feel a whole lot better about ourselves. Is this not true? But the problem, guys, with real is that if we focus on being real and keeping it real and making it real, then if we're not careful, we start to water the standards down. What does any of this have to do with what we read in those texts? I mean, you started off in John 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. We've seen His glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. I hope you get back to that text, because I'm where you, I mean, no sooner did you read these texts that you went off in what seems like something tangential that may not actually be connected to what you just read. We start to measure what's acceptable or what's allowable by how other people behave rather than by a set of standards that are inspirational and challenging. We start to make it all about, well, you know, so-and-so is doing it and everybody else is involved in it and it's all right there and we see it normalized on a television show and we just start thinking, well, if everybody else is doing it, then maybe I better do it. And the problem with real... Yeah, um, the problem is you're talking about the world and where do we get our moral standards from? Not the world. We get our moral standard from the written word of God is it doesn't really lift a society up. In fact, I think we could argue very strongly that it pulls a society down. I mean, those of us who are parents are quickly going to run into this trap. I mean, I, uh, my mother likes to remind me that when I was growing up, I, I'm one of four, and she likes to remind me that I, in fact, dad as well, that I needed the same amount of discipline as the other three kids in our family combined. And so when I come up against a strong-willed personality in my child, I'm tempted, if I'm not careful, to go, ah, there he is with that strong will. He's just like his dad. Or People do this in a whole lot of areas. I mean, they're, they're, they're late, they're ill-disciplined, they're disrespectful. But you know, when I was young, I was just like that. And if we're not careful, we start raising our children based on the flawed state of our own lives rather than realizing that God never asked you to replicate your dysfunction in another generation. God asked you to raise a child for Him and for His glory. And the goal of parenting is not to reproduce another layer of our own crazy. It's to make a child 
that is as close to the image of Christ as possible. The goal is not real. The goal is ideal. Okay, so these are the two categories he's, he's working in. Uh, real, apparently real has to do with the values of the world, and ideal has to do with the law. You know, the moral law. All right. He's kind of convoluted it here. I mean, would have been easier if you just actually exegeted a biblical text, but okay. And when we start thinking about life, I think it's very important that we don't just limit our lives to real. Because if we can't not... Don't just limit our lives to real. <laughs> uh, what? Careful, we talk about commitment and relationships and marriage, but, if, but when someone is unfaithful to a marriage or walks away from a committed relationship or neglects a principle or sleeps with somebody they shouldn't be, if we're not careful, we just accept a whole lot of stuff as being real and not realizing that there has got to be more to life than that. I... Yeah, this would clear up. I mean, by the you know, um, Pastor Cameron, um, you know, if you would just you know exegete your way through the Bible, and you maybe follow a lectionary, you know, like we do in the Lutheran Church, you'll preach the whole Council of the Word of God every year, and you'll have all these wonderful categories of law, gospel, sin, grace, repentance, forgiveness of sins. And, you know, and then what our lives look like now that we're set free from sin, death, and the devil in Christ. You, I mean, you would cover all of this if you just, you know, stick to the, you know, the job of making disciples by teaching the full counsel of the word of God. I believe that in life there are absolutes. I think that there are principled decisions. Yeah, that's what God's word teaches. Why are you stating this as if it's an opinion of yours rather than something revealed in God's word? If you reveal it from God's word, it has the authority of God behind it. When you state it as, I think there are absolutes, you're just giving us an opinion that we can like ignore or adopt, depending on if we feel like it, it meshes with our own opinions. I believe in integrity. Anybody with me? Again, why are you preaching your opinions rather than the word of God? God's word says a lot about integrity. I mean, you've only got to travel to a part of the world where integrity is not a fundamental value. And it's throughout many parts of the world, integrity is not valued. And you start to realize that nobody can get ahead unless, unless everybody buys in that your word is your bond. I believe in definite. And as a society... Yeah, I'm glad you believe in those because there are definites and there are absolutes. But the job of a pastor is to actually preach the word... Because God's word, are, these are the oracles of God. And God's word talks a lot about absolutes and definites. And it's not a human opinion. It's what God has revealed. Why are we relying on your opinions? We have allowed ourselves to drift a lot further away from this thought that there are ideals. That there are blacks and there are whites. That there are lines that you cross, and when you cross them, you cross them uh, to not only your own moral peril, but also to the detriment of other people that are around you. 
And if we're not. Yeah, like when a pastor, you know, leaves the uh, imperative, you know, and just ignores it to preach the word, right? I, yeah, I get it. Not careful, we walk away from a thought that there are blacks and there are whites, and we just start living like everything is in the realm of gray. Fifty shades of black and white or fifty shades of gray. I mean, all the time when I've been preparing for this, I've been remembering a song that's from an age ago. It must be 10 years old, 15 years old, by an an artist called Travis. I don't know if anyone who's old to remember him, but, you know, he used to sing and they go, you know, there is no wrong, there is no right, there is no black, there is no white, the circle only has one side. And if we're not careful, we start living like there isn't an absolute there isn't a real yeah it's not is it you know no no it's not if we're not careful this is what our sinful nature does by the fact it's corrupted by sin right there isn't a real wrong and we're all just a wash in a big sea of gray i mean we were we were driving the other day in the car myself and and lara and lara's now 11 and has an ipod touch and she's sitting up in the boost balcony so respect to the boosters this morning um but, you know, we're, we're listening to a song in, in the car and, and this guy is singing and he's a gifted singer and he's singing, I was a man who never lied, never lied until today and, and didn't want to break your heart. And, 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 and he said, he's just singing about, I used to live a principled life. I mean, I used to really value it. And then he's going on, he's saying, you know, in the same song, he's talking about there was a dream that it was forever. And he's basically saying, hey, you know what? Uh, I kind of started off thinking that there are real rights and real wrongs and that marriage is forever. But I'm kind of saying now I I realize that it didn't quite work out for me. And I reckon it's never been easier in any moment of our modern history anyway to just say we're all just living somewhere in the real, in the gray than it is perhaps today. The challenge for us, I guess, is whether this is good. I mean, because the maxim, if it's all gray, quickly becomes, if it feels good, just do it. I mean, if it's going to please you, then go for it. I mean, if, you, if it's enjoyable for you, and then we kind of add... To- now, he is diagnosing a real problem, but, you know, kind of a weird way of getting there. To that, this vague notion that if it's not going to hurt anybody else... It's really hard to find anything you want to do that that people can legitimately be willing to say it will hurt somebody else. But we're all lost in this great, you know, you and me, baby, we ain't nothing but mammals, you know. Let's do it like they do in the Discovery Channel. And if we're not careful, we start living in a whole bunch of gray and it starts to touch our communities. It starts to touch. Again, this is what people who are dead in trespasses and sins do. Yeah, they're they're under the bondage of the devil. They're dead in trespasses and sins. This is how they conduct their lives. Touch our lives, and it might even just start touching the people that are hearing this message up and down New Zealand and perhaps around the world this morning because we start thinking that we're all in the sea of gray. The problem, guys, is that it flies in the face of our Christian faith. If Christianity espouses anything, it espouses blacks and whites. We are a faith of moral absolutes. We believe in... This is true. And and because of the Bible, that there are some things that are good, and there are some things that are bad, some things that are right, and there are some things that are just 
plain wrong. Amen. There is a measuring stick. There is a way of determining things. We believe in absolutes, and absolutes are essentially ideals. Ideals. Ideals are powerful because when ideals begin to captivate a person, it begins to lift that life to believe that I'm making a choice. Now we've got a problem, and here's the problem. It's called the proper distinction of law and gospel. There are valid, uh, you know, how should we put this, purposes for God's law. And coming under the captivation of an ideal, somehow changing your life, that's not exactly correct, biblically. And this is where you have to understand the proper distinction of law and gospel. Romans chapter 3, we'll do a little bit of uh, law gospel primer here. And um, Paul, in Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 9, he begins to quote from a psalm, Psalm 14. It's also found in Psalm 53. And here's what it says. Uh, Paul says, so are we, are, what then, are we Jews any better off? Well, no, not at all. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That describes, by the way, every single human being in their sinful state. And this is what we're born as, all right? Dead in trespasses and sins, we do not know. You know, it's, it's well, let's just put it, we don't follow the way of God. We go the other way. And so Paul says this is everybody's state, and then he says this. Now, we know that whatever the law says, the law, by the way, is an absolute, and it's an ideal, says it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. So the purpose of this law, or he's calling it ideal, the purpose of this ideal is to shut everybody up, is what Romans 3.19 says, so that the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified, that is, declared righteous in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So, You think of it this way, the primary use of the law, the primary purpose of the law theologically is to give us the knowledge of our sin. So when we look at God's law, we look at his absolutes, we look at the ideal standard, and we sit there and go, yeah, Yeah, I ain't measuring up. I'm not doing it. And it shows us our sin and our need for a savior. So the gospel then comes and comforts us and tells us of the forgiveness of our sins, the forgiveness for not living up to this moral law and standard. And it's through the preaching of the gospel that a person is regenerate, brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. So law and gospel then work together. And then now a person who is set free can look at God's law at his moral standard and this becomes what's called the third use of the law, and they can see a blueprint for what it looks like to walk in freedom. And freedom is, well, obeying the law. And so the idea then is is that, that the gospel plays a part. The standard in and of itself does not have the power to give you to obey it. In fact, the power of the law 
is to condemn is to condemn the the law has no ability to give you the power to obey it it's only through the gospel that you have the power to begin to make progress in obeying that perfect ideal absolute standard so we got a little bit of a problem here because this is subtle he's making he's in a real way blurring the proper biblical distinction between law and gospel and what the law is capable of doing and what it what the purpose it serves in the life of a christian we continue. And it isn't just around personal preference, and it's not just around what makes me feel good or even is going to be the best thing for me. But an ideal lifts me to shoot for something that is going to be best for everyone, for everybody. Um, you know, when it comes to ideals, uh, if there is an ideal, then there's also behavior that is less than ideal. Yes, and that's called sin. And that's really the problem, isn't it? Yes, it is. And the problem, well, actually, our not living up to the ideal shows that we are sinners. By the way, we're not sinners because we sin. Nope. We sin because we are sinners. That's the reason why. And so the law then shows us that we are sinners and that we've transgressed God's law. It shows us that we're guilty and that we stand condemned. And we stand in, well, earning God's judgment for eternity. Because I think it's just the lowest confrontational approach you can take with life and society to just say, oh, no, no, no. Everybody's okay. We're all fine. You know, but if you've got ideals, if you've got rights and wrongs, then somebody is right and somebody is wrong. And so we want to avoid that. We want to, we want to make it all just nice and fuzzy and... Let's all just tolerate one another and coexist and everything is going to be okay. But maybe it's not going to be okay. Maybe if we, if we don't allow ourselves to have a conversation about what's right, or put it another way, if we, if we, if we walk away from ideals and we stop, we stop considering what's best, what's best, what's best, best in this situation? What's, what's the most principled reaction? What, what, is the, what is the creme de la creme of responses? What, what's the ideal reaction to this situation? Then I think we end up living lives where we've watered everything down to a search for happiness reacting to stimulus and circumstances, and we all just start deciding in the moment what we're going to do based around this overarching thought that whatever makes you happy, do it. If it makes you happy, it can be that bad. My singing certainly can. And this is, I guess, where Christianity comes up against a rub with modern culture because we believe that there is a place in all of the universe that is ideal. We believe in a destination that is ideal. And the reason why I called this message heaven isn't real is because heaven is not real in the way I've spent the last few minutes describing it. Heaven isn't real. Heaven is the only place in all the universe that is truly ideal. I mean, we read out as our last verse this morning about heaven in Revelation 21.4 that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
You'll have no reason ever. Yeah, now here's here's the problem. Okay, he talked about absolutes. And in the context that he's talking about absolutes, and he's talking about people who are just following and doing whatever they want to do and not living up to the ideal, that's referencing the law. So now he's made the ideal heaven. Yeah, yeah he's mixing his metaphors here. To cry. When you get to heaven, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. No one is going to harm you. Nothing is going to hurt you. There will be no uh, animosity, no bitterness, no greed, no jealousy, no harm. Yes, this is what it's going to be like in the eschaton. We will by nature then keep God's law, which is the ideal standard. No, no, nobody acting out of their own selfish desires. Heaven has no lust, no pride, no selfishness. No sin, that's right. Heaven is an absolutely perfect and ideal place. And the more like heaven we aim to be in this life, then the more of heaven we know in this life. Yeah, that 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 metaphor, that analogy, that parallel really breaks down. He's, it's like he's trying to preach the law without preaching the law. Why don't you just pull out the real moral standard and preach it, and let him have it, and then call him to repent and to be forgiven. And the reason why Christianity is such a challenging concept is because we believe that happiness is not just discovered by permissively pursuing what we want to pursue in life, but by living as closely as we can to a set of values that are personified in heaven and brought to earth. No, no, personified in heaven. We can't see heaven, but we can see the standard of God's law. You're kind of really falling short here. Through Jesus. That's the way to a great life. Come on, if you believe it, no matter where you are, come on, Fangadei, I can feel your love this morning. Come on, the more like Jesus we can be in this life, then the more of heaven we can know in our lives. See, when we think about heaven... On earth is he talking about? When we think about, I feel like he's selling me something. This perfect place that God has created for you and I. And people say, John, if I, if God is real, why is this world full of so much pain? And the reality is that it's not God's fault. Sin at work in this world is what causes all our suffering. True and harm and heaven is the place where sin is removed and real is no longer and instead of yeah you're right we will no longer be sinful we'll be raised again new bodies new heavens new earth no sin no suffering yeah right exactly but you know you need to point people to the law of god to the moral standard you say you believe in ideals and an absolute Show me the absolute. The absolute is not heaven. The absolute is the law of God. And in the new earth, when we're resurrected, we will not sin. We will keep God's law perfectly. It does provide an eschatological picture of what what life will be like, but you need to focus on the law here. You got to preach God's law well. 
Yeah, he's not. Oh, this is frustrating. Real, we have ideal. Nobody's ever going to make a choice based out of their own personal preference. They're going to make it based on the will of God freely at work within their lives. That's what makes heaven heaven. And when we think about Jesus, what's so powerful about our Savior is that Jesus came out of heaven to this earth. God became man, dwelt among us. And in John 1 verse 14, we discover that he is full of grace and truth. And then it says in John 1 verse 17, it says that he came that from him, we got grace and we got truth and they are found in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is what's so powerful. I want you to stay with me for the next couple of minutes. But we've got in Jesus grace, grace that covers all our imperfections. But well, yes, it actually doesn't, does more than that. All of our sins are atoned for, bled for, died for. It does a lot more than cover them. It, this is, you know, Jesus' death on the cross is not a fresh coat of paint, um, you know, on a corpse. No, um, this, it, um, yeah, it actually atones for our sins. Because our imperfections are what make us real and not ideal. Oh, golly, this is so convoluted. Why don't you just stick with the biblical categories? Law, gospel, sin, grace, repentance, forgiveness of sins. It's so simple. You've made it complicated, and as a result of it, you changing the words, you know, to try to be relevant, you're making yourself become convoluted and, you know, darn near inaccurate. What we celebrate when we look at somebody else, when we see their screwed up life in comparison to ours, is we think that our imperfections are less and somehow we are better. How many people know it doesn't work like that when you stop looking at reality TV or the person sitting next to you and you start looking in the face of Jesus? I just want to... Spit. Okay, um, we continue. But when we look in the face of Jesus, we find not judgment, but grace. Grace that covers our imperfections. Grace that was willing to pay the ultimate price. Grace that made a way where there was no way. But we don't only find in Jesus grace, we also find in Jesus truth. I mean, when Jesus came, he not only brought grace, man, and changed the world in doing it, he came and he really took truth and ratcheted it up to a whole nother level. I mean, Matthew 5, 27, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Think that's easy? Well, how about this one? If you look at a woman lustfully and think, whoa, then the moment you do that, you've already committed adultery. He's saying, I didn't come to kind of make things a little bit more vague. I came to reveal truth. Yeah, the issue there is that Jesus was revealing that sin is not something that you just do. Sin also occurs in your heart, in your thoughts, your words, your deeds, by the things you don't do, by the things you do do. I mean, it. yeah, so... Um, <laughs> this is so convoluted. 
And he also lived on this planet and personified truth in his daily living actions, reactions, responses, stimulus. The Bible says that he was tempted in every way as we are and remained without sin. Right, right. No, notice that it says about Jesus, he remained without sin. So you need to talk about how we sin. Yeah, you've been kind of shaving all the hard edges off the law, and you've got this weird duality of reality and the ideal, and you're not helping us understand law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance, forgiveness of sins. (sighs) Now that is pretty ideal and pretty confrontational. And my friends, it's a package. When we discover Jesus, we also not only discover the one who revealed perfection, we then find the Jesus who paid the price for my and for your imperfection. Right. So you have some concept that, you know, Christ's death on the cross has something to do with the removal of sin, but you're not talking about the atonement, the forgiveness of sins, the propitiation of the wrath of God. Yeah, yeah. Even your gospel, it gets kind of fuzzy. He is grace and he is truth. If we don't acknowledge truth, then we don't discover grace. And this is the reality of this life. And this is why I want to start this series with this message entitled Heaven Isn't Real. Because if we are unwilling to acknowledge truth, to acknowledge ideal, if we stop coming to Jesus as being the moral standard, then not... Uh, Yeah, Jesus lives the moral standard perfectly. But you're not going to find the finer points of the moral standard apart from the written word of God in the moral law. Only do we fail to acknowledge truth, but we miss out on grace. Because I don't know about you, but every time I come closer to God, the first thing that happens is I feel terrible. Now, no, (laughs) that's what he does here. Because he's going to talk experientially about the work of the law and the comfort of the gospel, but he, he's not connecting the dots. In fact, what's really going wrong here is, you're, and you can kind of see this if you start thinking about this way, he's interpreting Scripture experientially rather than letting God's Word govern his understanding of his experiences. That's the problem. He's got, he's got experience kind of in the driver's seat, and God's Word is yielding to his experience. That's really the problem. And as a result of it, his experience is putting him somewhere close to the right understanding, but he can't get there because God's word is not in the driver's seat. Ah, this is bad. Come on, man. You, I mean, you're in the middle of some worshipful environment. You're in some moment. You read the Bible. I mean, the end of the story is amazing because you discover the love of God in a higher level. That's what conviction does, right? But if you've been journeying with Jesus for any period of time, or maybe you're just in the service this morning somewhere in New Zealand, and you're discovering Jesus right now, then you could even be in the middle of this moment where you just feel incredibly aware of how much not like him, you are. But then the next thing that happens is that he comes to our lives 
And because of his death on the cross, because of the price that he paid, his grace covers my imperfections. And man, isn't that the most changing thing that can happen to a life? Yeah, again, Christ died for our sins. He didn't cover our imperfections. It's not a coat of paint. Isn't that the most motivational thing that can ever take place? It is an awakening to a God who is out there, who loves us, who is powerful, who made a way with... He's not only holy, he's loving. He's not only perfect, he died for me. And that, my friends, awakens my life to discover the truth of who he is. Yeah, actually, God is the one who awakens you through the preaching of God's law and gospel. And the guess the challenge is that making things real sounds good, but it doesn't reveal Jesus. And the reason why I think coming back to black and white is so crucial is not because I want to make anybody else feel bad. Uh, again, the scriptures teach that the purpose of the Holy Spirit, the job of the Holy Spirit that Jesus would send would be that convict the, the world of sin and unbelief, which will require them to feel bad and contrite and sorrowful and under God's judgment for not measuring up to the standard of his law. Because I want everybody to find Jesus. Because the more clearly we can communicate to a world... <laughs> And there's the irony. He's talking about the importance of communicating clearly. Well, he hasn't been the entire sermon. Oh, boy. That Jesus is the one who makes a way for us. Then the more people can know grace. Because if we're not careful, you know, we've entitled this this message series uh, 50 Shades of Black and White because life is either about nothing really wrong and nothing really right or... It's about Jesus, 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 Jesus and his truth. Yes, that requires you to actually preach from a biblical text what Jesus said and taught, not just speculate and kind of generalize about what Jesus did, which is what you're doing in the sermon. Jesus and his grace. See, the more we discover about God than about Jesus, then then we discover more about his truth and we are convicted. But the more we discover of his grace, the more we are empowered. We're convicted first and then we're empowered. We're, in, we're inspired and then we're equipped. And if there is no Jesus, then what do we got? And I get the grade because if there is no God, then at the end of the day, there's no way out of this dysfunction. So we might as well stop making everybody feel so bad for our levels of dysfunction. But if there is a God, then he not only revealed his standard, but he... Levels of dysfunction, and again, there's sin. And he paid the price for it, then we can find a way through dysfunction and not just ripple... <laughs> Okay, so like I said, the issue here is is that his experience is in the interpretive driver's seat, and he's doing doctrine without text, but from experience kind of peppered with texts that are interpreted through his experience. I know it sounds convoluted, but that's really what's causing the convolution. Is that a word?
duplicate more rubbish, but we can lead our lives towards an ideal state. Bring it back to where I said before. The more lead our lives towards an ideal state. Um, I'm going to be ending up in a grave. How's that for an ideal state? The ideal state comes in the eschaton with the resurrection of heaven you get in you the more of heaven you know around you and we can lead lives yeah that's not necessarily true either there are many people who as they've grown in their christian faith and have begun to bear the fruit of the spirit in their lives it has led to turmoil and then being martyred and put to death and being persecuted so so here you're talking about oh this ideal standard of the eschaton of the new earth of what christ's going to do in heaven and you're saying that the more of this we bring into our lives that it's going to bring this. No, it's not. It could actually bring a lot more hell in your life because the world doesn't bear these things. That are truly going to make a difference for God. And I believe that we're coming to a time when Christians need to be willing to be awakened and say, Hey, I believe in Jesus. We've got to get back. Um, <laughs> Christians need to be awakened and say, Hey, I believe in Jesus. If they're Christians, wouldn't they already believe? Never mind. Like I said, this whole sermon is convoluted. Back on the side of the ledger where we've got our views in front of our society saying we're not, we're not trying to tell them that everybody's bad. We're trying to say there's only one who is good. And yeah, we, actually, we need to tell everybody that they're bad, that they're sinful, that they're wretched, that they're depraved, that they're dead in trespasses and sins. This is what God's law reveals. And call them to repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. <sighs> yeah, again, his experience is in the driver's seat. And it's dictating his understanding of scripture rather than the other way around. And we need him in our lives. Come on. If you believe it, can you give God some praise this morning? Um, uh, if we don't lift up the truth of Jesus, then we don't live in his grace. That's the challenge. Uh, what? <laughs> what does that sentence even mean? Again, he's not preaching or exegeting any biblical text. It's black and it's white. And yeah, if truth is without grace, then it leads to condemnation and shame. And if grace is without truth, then it leads to really to nothing because you don't appreciate what you don't see the price, the value of. So it's got to be put into one package. And now we start to really understand what the New Testament's saying because it's like him we preach, him we declare. We lift up the name of Jesus. We put his name above. Yeah, then actually do that. Stop talking about doing it and actually do it. Above our door, his banner above our hearts, his anthem in our spirit. It's him that we worship. It's him that we adore. It's him we seek to emulate because Jesus is grace and truth. And when we find him, we can find a way through all the chaos. See, I believe that there are blacks and whites. I believe that there are ideals. That's becoming controversial. But I believe that there are ideal patterns for life. I believe that marriage is supposed to be between one man to one woman for the whole of your life without ever anybody coming in. I believe that that is the center 
of not just a stable family, but as the bedrock of a healthy and prosperous community and nation. I believe that. I believe that children are most blessed when they get to live in that kind of environment. I do. If, if mom and dad love each other and live together forever and they get old and wrinkly still holding hands, then I believe that children are blessed to live in that environment. I believe it. I believe that sex is only for marriage. I believe that. I believe in virginity. I... Yeah, a litany of your opinions. Why don't you show us this from God's word? Because your opinions happen to be in agreement with what God's word says. I believe that sex is not just uh, for entertainment. I believe it's a covenantial act. I believe that. And, and the danger becomes that we, we kind of want to retreat from that because it feels like when we start putting it out there that even the thousands of people hearing me this morning who haven't been able to live up to that pleasantville experience start saying, well, you know, are you trying to say that I'm anything less? No, no, I'm saying that for the more truth we discover, the more we... Yeah, notice every time he gives an example of confronting a sinner with their sin, oh, no, no, that's not what I'm doing. Why not? We are awakened to grace because the truth is it doesn't matter whether you've been wrecked and abused and messed up and come from all kind of chaos. The grace of God touches us right at the point of our dysfunction and he starts. Uh, the grace of God touches us at the point of our dysfunction. What does that mean? Starts to work the most amazing things, and there's no shame, and there's no guilt. There's love that covers. There's grace that empowers. There's a promise that gets awakened, and God always makes a way. Uh, yeah, he's getting a uh, you know you know a big applause line, and I'm not even sure what he's talking about. Weird. But my friends, what God is looking for is a group of people that are going to just declare his truth and live by his grace. And you haven't actually read any biblical text that explain what any of that means. You can't do theology and doctrine this way. So what, what's the key? to great relationships as we start off the series and you know we're going to get more practical in fact here in Wellington I'm, I'm sure that there's going to be some interesting stories told about me tonight I'm preparing myself for the tread marks to do to do as I go under the bus this evening but but Jillian's going to talk about 10 hot tips for dating or something like 10 10 top tips we were all trying to say it in the pre-service meeting and decided that that was a verbal landmine. <laughs> 10 top tips for dating. That, that, you got to say that right or you're in trouble. And we're going to break the series down and get a little bit more practical. But if we're going to start with the key, what is the key? Is there a key to relationships, to marriage? to life, I believe there is. Aim for Jesus. If you want your relationships to be great, if you want your family to be blessed, if you want to live in an amazing community as prosperous as our New Zealand society is, if you, yeah, I feel like I'm being sold something. If you want your future to be assured, then wake up every day and pray. This day, 
make me more like Jesus. This day, let my reactions be increasingly the reactions of Christ. Let the principles that I live my life be this day conformed to who Jesus is. Don't let me live for myself. Don't let me live out of regret or shame. Don't let me live out of my own pride or my own self. Yeah, why don't we pray the way Jesus taught us to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I mean, why don't we just pray the way Jesus taught us to pray? Because this is a very law-heavy prayer. And there's nothing wrong with praying that God give us the strength to bear the fruit of repentance in our life and the fruit of the Spirit in our life. But, yeah, this guy is totally confused. Law and gospel, sin, grace, repentance, forgiveness of sins. Although he's come so close to actually preaching the gospel without actually doing it, which is frustrating. I mean, it's it's similar to what we heard Brian Houston do last week. Want let me live like Jesus would live. Let me love God and let me love people. And that's the way we can have great relationships. When we're hurt, we forgive. When we're tempted, we resist. When we're lonely, we pray. When we're convicted, we repent. When we wrong some Yeah, again, there's nothing technically wrong with the list except for your words and your opinions do not have the power. It's God's word that has the power. Let God's word speak and show us from God's word where these are the things that we're to be doing. One, we seek forgiveness, but we live like Jesus lived. That's the way that this thing works. He is the black and white. He's the I- Yeah, he is. He lives sinlessly, perfectly. And when I compare myself to Jesus and to the law he lived, I've come up way short. Today, yesterday, day before, probably tomorrow too. This is why I need the forgiveness of sins. And the gospel is the thing that empowers me then, I'm glad you used that word, to then seek to live the way God wills for me to live because I'm forgiven and in Christ. Ideal. Come on, if you believe that, can you give God some praise? The band are going to come join me. Come on. I want to finish this morning with a story that I've told at a bunch of people's weddings. And um, I've definitely mentioned it from the pulpit. Is this story found in scripture? And summarized services before, but it's probably my favorite story when it comes to relationships. And it's a story about Billy Graham. Nope, not found in the Bible. Got a problem here. Being interviewed on television. And it fits this message so well. It's in the, in the 80s, and he's being interviewed on Australian television, which is obviously just ruthless for a Christian. And as he's being interviewed on television, um, the reporter says to him, you know, what about these, you know, mega ministries, you know, in America that have fallen? And, and you know, is, is all of that, you know... Cue sappy music. This is an emotional manipulation technique designed to create the false impression that God, the Holy Spirit, is now descending on the audience as they begin to, you know, do business with God and make decisions and things like that. Taken, 
you know, resources and stuff. Is that right? And he's like, no, that's wrong. And, you know, the, you know, the, what about adultery? And, and it's like, no, 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 what, what they've done is wrong. And as they're talking away in this interview, the reporter is pushing Billy Graham and it comes to the question of divorce. And Billy Graham says, I believe that divorce is wrong. It's on worldwide television. Well, you can imagine that even in the 80s, this was already a very strong thing. And so the reporter says to him, what do you mean to tell me, Billy Graham? Do you mean to tell me if you wake up tomorrow morning and you're out of love with your wife, that God's will is that you remain in a loveless marriage for the rest of your life? Are you trying to tell me that a God of love wants you and I to live in a miserable marriage for the rest of our lives rather than choosing what will make us happy? I mean, it's going on and on and on. And finally he pauses. And Billy Graham, I think led by the Holy Spirit, looks at the reporter and he says, if I wake up tomorrow morning and I'm out of love with my wife, then I'm getting out of bed only to fall on my knees. And I'm not leaving my knees in prayer until I am in love with her. And that is it. Isn't that it? Isn't that what we're talking about? Not the God, not the God who imposes impossible standards on us. Not the God of shame or guilt, but the God of grace. The God whose empowerment can help us with all of it. Yeah, the problem is, is that grace is about God's mercy and the forgiveness of sins. And your definition based upon what you're saying here is different than the biblical definition. Because you want to avoid, oh, shame and guilt, as if somehow that's bad. No, it's not. When you feel the conviction of God's law and God's wrath against your sin, uh, well, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, according to Jesus. That's something that's really important for people to experience, and we don't want to circumvent that. Our dysfunction, the one whose love covers us when we don't know what to do. The God who steps in and gives us the strength we need to live the right kind of life for Him. And I believe, I believe in a God of grace. I believe in a God of love. And hey, I want you to know that we're all in this room, in every room this morning, with measure different forms of the same dysfunction. Yet, a holy God paid a price for our flaws and faults, shame and guilt, and he made a way. They're called sins. Where there is no way. And what I love about that Billy Graham story is that it connects it right back to Jesus. This morning, uh, how did the Billy Graham story connect back to Jesus? I didn't hear that connect back to him at all. I'd love to finish this message by praying for people in, in every Arise campus this morning who are part of this service. And you're saying, John, I realized today that in my life, I've started to let my standard become more about 
well, they do it. So notice, uh, apparently he intended for this message to convict people of their sin. And he's describing somebody who feels bad about it. Yet he says, no, no, don't feel bad. And they do it. And Christianity is not actually supposed to be designed, uh, imposed societally. It's supposed to be lived personally. <laughs> Don't tell that to a theonomist. And the biggest thing that we can do to make a difference in our community is to live more like Jesus. And so if in our lives, we recognize that there's some room to change. And I'm probably going to put my own hand up and get included in the prayer that I'm going to pray for me. Then... I think we should commit to that. That we should just stop the... Just commit to, you know, changing. So the solution to breaking God's law is to just be obedient. No. Biblically, the solution to breaking God's law is to repent, be forgiven. So we got a problem. The law now has become the solution for the problem that he's put forward in this sermon. The law can't be the solution. The law is the thing that has showed that we have the problem. The solution has to be a crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ, who bled and died for these sins. And that's what's missing. Although he's given lip service to grace and mentioned something about Jesus doing something for our dysfunction, he hasn't preached the crucified and risen Savior for the forgiveness of sins. The Savior who bled and died and propitiates the wrath of God, the, the Savior who was pierced for our transgressions. Yeah, this is a problem. Stupid nonsense that if we all just get more real, that the world's going to get better and become more like Him. He made the world. I reckon He knows the best way to live in it. Who's with me? Come on, you close your eyes, bow your heads this morning in every campus. Done. Yeah. <clears throat> Not going to pray with him. Not going to let him pray for us. So there you go. Um, that's an example of a man whose experience is in the um, hermeneutical driver's seat rather than the word of God. And although many of the things he said were technically true, they were not preached from the word of God. And they were preached mainly from his experience, which was interpreting God's word rather than God's word interpreting his experiences. Very problematic, complete confusion of law and gospel. And the law then becomes the solution for our breaking the law. Yeah, that's not going to work. That is a formula ultimately for despair. He has some, con some concept of grace and knows that God's grace is important experientially, but didn't preach it clearly from any text. So what was doing the heavy lifting? His opinions rather than the word of God. And yet God's word is the thing that equips us for every good work, not our pastor's opinions. Think about it. All right, we're up at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition, or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. 
Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>